We're going to continue today in our, our study of Matthew. Today I want to talk about, I want us to talk about love. Love is a word that is um, often much overused in our day and often misused. We often find ourselves, if we're not careful, saying that we love everything from our dog to I love pizza, I love the Tampa Bay Rays, I love this football team. And when we do that, it kind of tends to dilute what love really is. Because do we, we really don't love those things. We just like them a whole lot or we're fond of them. But we, I want us to look today at what love really is or should be <clears throat> and how we are to love those around us and what the Bible says about that. This week's lesson probably take, takes place on the Tuesday during the week leading up to Jesus' crucifixion on Friday. I want to start by reading Matthew chapter 22, verses 34 through 36. Hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, the Pharisees got together. One of them, an expert in the law, tested him with this question. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? In Jesus' day, the, the Pharisees and the Sadducees were not exactly buddies. They were typically adversaries. However, on this particular day, we see that they kind of joined together to, with a common purpose of trying to discredit Jesus. They both saw Jesus as a threat to their standing with the people. And, and if he was a threat to their standing with the people, then he was a threat to their power over the people. And so they wanted to make Jesus look bad. So we see that the Sadducees had had a shot at him. And what they had done, and give you a little background on the Sadducees, the Sadducees did not believe in a resurrection of men. They didn't believe that in the end that people would actually be resurrected. So keeping that in mind, one of the Sadducees asked Jesus a hypothetical question. And the question was, about a man who had been married several times as a widower. And the question was, whose wife will be his in the resurrection? Since he had been married many times. It was a trick question, obviously. And it was really a meaningless question because, remember, they didn't believe in the resurrection. So it's obvious that all they were trying to do was just stump Jesus with a, some kind of a trick question. It didn't work very well. Whether, rather than trapping Jesus into saying something wrong or foolish, Jesus pointed out that they really didn't have a very good knowledge of the Bible. And his reply astonished the crowd. And the Pharisees are kind of standing off watching this, and they don't like the Sadducees anyway, and somewhere inside they were probably saying, ah, look at them, they look stupid. But they wanted the same thing. So they gathered together, the Pharisees gathered together, to come up with the next step of their plot. And I'm sure that Jesus saw them huddling together over there in their brightly colored robes and looking all holy. And they were trying to figure out, what can we do now to get Jesus? And even though they were probably joyful at, at Jesus silencing the Sadducees over the resurrection... Because that was actually one of the key things that the Sadducees and the Pharisees disagreed with was over the resurrection. But they were still hoping that they could draw Jesus into some kind of a, a, a controversy where he would say the wrong thing. 
So here's what they did. It says that they chose an expert of the law, somebody that, that knew exactly what the law said. And they chose him. They all got together and said, okay, here's what you're going to do. You're going to go over and ask Jesus this trick question because you're an expert in the law. And maybe they thought by sending someone who was an expert in the law that Jesus would have a certain amount of respect for this man's knowledge and he would let down his guard. And when he did, they could get him with a trick question. In Jesus' day, there was an awful lot of controversy over the, what was the most important commandment. It stirred up a lot of debate. And this is the direction that the Pharisees decided to go in. In fact, the rabbis of that day, imagine this, the rabbis of that day had compiled a listing of 613 regulations that were meant to show how the Ten Commandments might or should be followed in everyday life. 613 regulations to explain the Ten Commandments. To me, the Ten Commandments seem pretty self-explanatory. But again, this was man's version of what God had said. And if we're not careful, too many times we do the same thing. We take the simple word of God, we take a simple gospel, and to the simple gospel we add our own set of regulations that just make it confusing. When really it's a simple gospel. And these regulations were meant to act as a guide to the people so that they wouldn't unknowingly break one. The regulations were divided into important and less important categories. And I believe that the Pharisees really wanted, again, to draw Jesus into the discussion of these regulations because they thought he would pick his favorite one, and when he did, they could go after him about that particular one. In other words, they were just trying to stir it up. Matthew 22, verses 37 through 40. Jesus replied, again, they're asking him, what is the greatest commandment? Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. And this is an important thing. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. Jesus begins by quoting Deuteronomy 6 and 5. It was a, a passage well known to every Jew who was listening that day, and it is still recited by Orthodox Jews today. It was called the Shema. It was the great Old Testament statement of faith. Shema comes from the word, the Hebrew word meaning to hear. So with his reply, Jesus reminded his listeners that there was already this summary statement of the law. There were, there's this one statement that kind of covers the entire law, and it provides them with that greatest commandment that they were looking for. And he was telling them that their primary responsibility was to love God with all of the capabilities that they had within themselves. And you would think again that that would be pretty easy to understand. The word love here that Jesus uses is the Greek word agape, which signifies commitment and visible acts of love. Not just saying we love something, but actually showing that we love something or someone. Jesus was telling them and telling us today that we are to behave, we are to live our lives in ways that show our love for Him. We are not just to say, Lord, I love you. 
We are to actually live our life in a way that says, Lord, I love you. There's a whole lot of difference between the two. And the reason is because our, our emotions can sometimes be, be fickle or uncertain. And emotions cannot often be changed, sometimes cannot be changed or modified by a command. Somebody tells you to love somebody and they command you to do it, it's really not love if you just follow it because it's a command. It has to be somewhere in your heart. But God does demand service and obedience. And when we serve and obey God and the commands of God, it will demonstrate our de- <coughs> it will demonstrate our devotion and our love for Him. But it should not be a, a kind of hollow service just for demonstration purposes only. Again, that was one of the biggest criticisms that Jesus had of the Pharisees, is that everything they did was for other people to see. It was so that people would look at them and say, oh, look how holy they are. Look how much they must love God. Look at them. Look at their robes. They have the beautiful robes. And it was all about the exterior. And God is saying that if all, Jesus was saying that if all your love is strictly because you were commanded to do it, then it's all on the outside and it doesn't mean anything. If we only come to God and say that we love Him because we're afraid that He's going to squash us or send us to hell, we don't really love Him. We're not acting out of love, we're acting out of fear. But when it's in our heart, when it's something that is real, and we, we know that, that God is as great, and we recognize how great He is, and when we finally get that, and we say, Lord, I love you because of who you are, then it means something. Those of you that have had children, you know that there's probably nothing as great as one of your kids coming up to you out of nowhere and just come up and say, I love you. It wasn't because you gave them something. It wasn't because you had said, I love you. It was just out of nowhere. It came and you knew it was real. I've said many times that Saying, I love you, seems to mean so much more than I love you too. Think about that for a minute. Saying, I love you, seems to be so much more meaningful than I love you too. Because too many times, I love you too is just a response to I love you. And you kind of wonder, would they have said it if I wouldn't have said I love you first? And God, I believe, looks at us that same way that we shouldn't wait for Him to show His love to us so that we can say, I love you too. It should come from us first. Lord, I love you. Because it's in our heart. The words heart, mind, and soul that's used in verse 37 represent kind of a, an overlapping description of everything that we are. And when they're taken together, they illustrate God's command that we love Him totally and unreservedly with our entire being. If heart, mind, and soul is everything we are, and Jesus was, com- was repeating and quoting this commandment that we're to love God with our heart and with our soul and our mind, then that means we're to love Him with everything we have. The heart represents the, the hub of, of our very existence 
as the source of our thoughts and our words and our actions. And soul primarily refers to the emotional part. And the mind includes not only our thinking, but also our attitudes and our, our mental disposition toward life as a whole. So it's our heart and our mind and our soul. And all of these things represent who we are and what we are. And that's how much we're supposed to love God. With everything we are. God desires that we love Him with our entire being. Not with just our mouth. <clears throat> I wrote a song several years ago. And... It was something that God really impressed on me. And the words are really simple. It says, Though I praise you with my lips, there's so much more that you deserve from me. So I give you all of me. Take my life. Though it's not much, it's all I have to give. And the reason I, I, I think God really placed that on my heart is because I felt like too many times we come to church and we sing songs and we sing praises and we worship in music and it's all from here. We see it up on the screen and we say the words and they're right there, so why not just sing along? The music is playing and the singers are singing, so we'll just join in and sing. And if we're not careful, it's strictly surface level. It's not with our heart. It's not with our mind. It's not with our soul. It's just with our mouth. And He does deserve so much more from us than just praise with our lips. In the same passage in Deuteronomy that Jesus was quoting, it told, if you go back and read Deuteronomy, and this, it's, it's really interesting if you go back, he told the people to, to take this thought and put it upon their hands and bind it to their foreheads. And the people of that day, and many Orthodox Jews still do, they literally do that. They take these scriptures, and I was reading this past week about exactly how there's a certain way that they have to write it, and they put it on a parchment, and they roll it up, and they put it in these little leather boxes called phylacteries. And they put the little box on their head, and they strap it to their head, and they have them on their hands because they just take it literally, bind it to your heart, your heads and to your hands. I believe Jesus placed this whole passage that he's quoting as so important because he was trying to get across that our love for God should be real. When we're supposed to bind it to our hands and to our heads, it's not to put it in a little box and stick it up there. It's to put it in our mind, to wherever our hands go and whatever our hands do, that love should be shown there. It should be with what? Our whole mind, our whole soul in our heart. Not just stuck in a little box. Those things need to become a part of us. And too many times, if we're not careful, we look at those, those Orthodox Jews and we go, well, how silly is that? They've got those little boxes on their head. Look at me, I've got a Bible I carry around. And we carry this Bible around, and although David said in Psalm that your word have I hid in my heart that I won't sin against you, we're content with carrying our phylactery Bible around because it hasn't become a part of us. 
And Jesus was saying that this commandment to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind is so important because it has to be real. And not just actions, it should represent who we are. When people see us, they need to know that we love God with our, with our heart and with our mind and with our soul. These things should be a part of our character. When, we, when we're faced with a situation, if we really have that inside of us, if we love the Lord our God with all our heart and soul and our mind, when we're faced with a situation, we don't have to say, hang on a second, let me look it up in my Bible. It's in our heart. And we have the Spirit of God in our heart. And it leads us to do the right thing. Because it becomes a part of our character, not just a box strapped to our head. It is the most important commandment. Because it, it sums up our required response to God. And not only that, it forms the basis for our love for others. Because that one followed right behind it. First and foremost, Jesus said, and again, this is a, trying to trick him with a trick question. What's the most important commandment? The most important one is that you go back and read the law and see that it says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and all your mind. And when we do that, it sets us up for this next one. If we truly have that kind of love for our God, the next commandment of loving our neighbor will become much easier. Why? Because it's become our character. The words love your neighbor as yourself comes from Leviticus 19 and 18. And Jesus again is quoting the law with his reply. And although the law was very, very heavy with regulation and standards, it clearly prescribed something that is a love for God and a love for others. Even in the law. The basis for everything that's written in the law requires a heart relationship with God. And that heart relationship with God would then in turn flow out to others that were around us. Without love, all the other regulations would result in just a, a sterile and meaningless service. If we only do the things that we do as Christians because we're forced to do it, they're meaningless. But if we do it because we love God and because we love people, then all of a sudden it means something. And this is not just an Old Testament concept. Paul wrote in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verses 1, and we're going to read that, that whole passage there. Look what Paul wrote. Too many times people say, yeah, it's the Old Testament. It doesn't count for us. Let's look at the New Testament. If I speak in the tongues of men and angels... And have not love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have faith that can move mountains, which we really look at that kind of stuff and go, wow, that's amazing. But have not love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and surrender my body to the flames, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient. 
Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It is not rude. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Back up a minute. It keeps no record of wrongs. Now we'll go on. It is not rude. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices in the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. But where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. And where there is knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when perfection comes, the imperfect disappears. When I was a child, I talked like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put childish ways behind me. And now we see but a poor reflection as in a mirror. But then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part. Then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. And here's the key. And now these three remain. Faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. Not a surface love. A real love that comes from our heart. If we are in a right relationship with God, hold on for just a second here. If we are in a right relationship with God, we will have no problem fulfilling the second commandment that Jesus quoted. If we love our neighbors, we won't do anything that will harm them. And ironically, the very religious leaders that were busy running around trying to trip Jesus up were disobeying both of those commandments as they were speaking to Jesus. Jesus had told them in, in John 8 and 42 that if God was really their father, that they would love him. And they obviously didn't. And not only did they not love him as their God, they didn't love him as their neighbor. So here are these religious leaders of the day that are trying to trip Jesus up with the greatest commandment, and he's telling them what it is, and as he is telling them, they are breaking both of them because they hated him for who he was. Not just he was the son of God, they hated him as their neighbor. They accepted the authority of the law. They pledged to obey it in all the critical areas of their lives. But they chose to disobey the very purpose of the law. I'll follow it to the T. I'll follow every word. But as far as the purpose of it, I just don't care about it. And if we're not careful again, we see that in our day, we can know this Bible, we can read it, we can follow all the little rules and regulations that have been made up over the years. And we look the part. We know all the right things to say. We know how to raise our hands in worship. We know the words to all the songs. but we don't know the purpose. Jesus concluded his, his response to this expert in the law by stating that the entire Old Testament 
hangs on these two commandments. Again, this is an expert of the law. If anybody would appreciate that statement, it would be this man. He said, in fact, that commandment of, of loving the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, and all your soul, and love your neighbor as yourself, everything else in the entire Old Testament hangs on those two commandments. Everything in Scripture is based on those two overriding principles of loving God and loving those around us. In Mark's version of the law, of this incident, I love to read the same incident written by different writers. You have the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And these were followers of Jesus. And I was talking to somebody yesterday and I said, it's kind of like if you had a big news story going and you had four different newspaper reporters there watching it. They're all seeing the exact same thing, but when you read their story, they tell it in a little bit different way. And one picks up some key things that the other one didn't pick up on. And that's why it's so cool to pick up the Bible and, and read an incident from Matthew and then go over in Mark and find the same thing and see what Mark's version of it was. The events always match up. It's just the details sometimes are a little bit more explicit. But in Mark's version of this incident, the teacher of the law tells Jesus this. He says, you answered correctly. And that, that love of God and for one's love for one's neighbor was far better than burnt offerings and sacrifices. He really was an expert in the law. He got it. Jesus said that's the most important thing, and he said, you know what? You're right. Probably didn't make him very popular with the rest of the Pharisees. In Mark's account, Jesus went on to tell this expert in the law that he was not far from the kingdom of God. And we would hope that eventually this teacher of the law became a part of those religious leaders who accepted who Jesus was and followed him. Because I believe he looked at Jesus different than all the other Pharisees and he said, this guy gets it. And after that, if you look at that last part of verse 34, Mark wrote, and from then on, no one dared ask him any more questions. I'm not going to go ask him a question. That guy was an expert. And when they were all done, that guy said, Jesus, you're right. He might convert me too. Just as many regulations of the law, the law of Moses, were difficult to obey, so is Jesus' summation of all that is required for us equally difficult. Or at least it is for me. Maybe not for you. To love our neighbor as ourselves. Sometimes that's a little hard. We need God's help, or at least I do. I'll speak for myself. I need God's help in order to love Him in a way that will produce love for others around me sometimes. Our failure to love as we should, for those failures, God sent His Son to die on the cross in our place. 
we come up short sometimes. For our inability to love God and others as we should, we have the Holy Spirit to empower us. Sometimes the real problem isn't in loving God. It's in loving those around us. We have no problem with God. As that famous philosopher Charlie Brown said, I love mankind, it's people I can't stand. Someone else said, the more I get to know people, the more I love my dog. Sometimes we struggle with loving our neighbor. Not the person that lives next door to us. Jesus had that conversation with them too. Who is your neighbor? And came to find out that your neighbor was just anybody that was around you. And we struggle sometimes with loving our neighbor. But Jesus made it very clear that that is not acceptable. 1 John 4, 11 and 12, and then verses 19 and 20. Look what this says. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. That's, that's easy enough. We can all look at that and say, yeah, I, I like that scripture. I believe God loved me and I just ought to love everybody. He goes on to say, but no one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us and His love is made complete in us. And we read that and go, I can go for that too. But then we skip down a few verses. We love because He first loved us and we're okay with that one. But then we get to this one. If anyone says, I love God, yet hates his brother, he is a liar. For anyone who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And that's one of those verses we could just say, well, you could have stopped before you got there. How can we say, if Jesus said the most important commandments are, number one, love your God, with your heart, mind, and soul. That's the most important commandment. And right behind it is love your neighbor as yourself. And you say, well, I don't have any problem with loving God. It's the neighbor I have a problem with. And in this passage of Scripture, John said, if you can't love your brother who you see, there's no way you love God who you've never seen. You're a liar. Thankfully, we're not trying to love others on our own. The Holy Spirit helps us. Especially to love those who we might consider unlovable. To love those neighbors we not only may not want to love, we just don't even want to talk to them. But the Holy Spirit will help us. A, a big part of wisdom is the ability to discern between the power of the seed and the fruit. Stay with me for just a minute. This is a really cool concept here. For one of the biggest things of wisdom is to discern between the discern between the power of the seed and the power of the fruit. Each will bring the other. You agree? The fruit will bring the seed and the seed will bring the fruit and it's a cycle. But the workings of each are significantly different. We often wish for the blessing of the fruit, like the fruit of the Spirit, but we're less enamored with planting the seeds that promise in time those fruitful results. 
Lord, give me the fruits of the Spirit. I want to see all those fruits of the Spirit. Well, go out and plant some seeds so you can see those fruits of the Spirit grow in your life. I don't want to do that. We want the fruit without having to plant the seed. And I'm not a farmer, but I'm pretty sure that doesn't work. Love is the fruit that we are told is the greatest of all. Of all three of those, the greatest of these is love. If we don't have it, then we are just absolutely making false noises of caring for others. That clanging cymbal and a gong. If you just go over there right now and just start beating on those cymbals, it is meaningless. It's just annoying. And that's what Paul was saying. That when we have that kind of an attitude and we don't have love, then we're just a clanging cymbal and a gong. Just noise. As much as we try to love others, we will only seem to succeed at times and then fail miserably if we resort to our own self-effort. If we all try to do it on our own, we're just not going to do it all the time. Because I don't know about you, but I don't have it within myself to just love everybody I come in contact with. It's when we're trying to do it ourselves and we're not connected to God's love that we find our, ourselves saying that we are loving when we're not. It's just from our mouth. And while sometimes we might think we're fooling people with our false uh, interest or our false sayings of how much we love them, most people see that. They know when it's real. If there's ever a group of people that it should come across as being real and from our heart, it should be from us as Christians. If we go into the world and tell people we love them and they look and go, no, you don't. Then we didn't get it. Jesus wasn't just saying that you just, you know, you guys just ought to love each other. It's just a good suggestion. No. Remember the question to him was, what is the greatest of all the commandments? And the very first was to love God with everything that's in us. And the second was to love our neighbor as ourselves. Someone once said that they weren't the Ten Suggestions, they were the Ten Commandments. And those two were the greatest of the Ten Commandments. Manufactured love is not the kind of love that we are called to have as God's people. You see, our Heavenly Father has shown us real love. He has poured real love on us and through us to go out to other people. But it only happens when we live in fellowship with Him. He alone is our source of love. We within ourselves cannot love everyone we come in contact with. I will just tell you that. I, I just, I'm just going to jump to a conclusion here. I just don't think there's anyone that can do that. 
without having the real love of God in your heart, I don't think that we can love as Jesus said we have to do. To love our neighbor as ourself. Not just, yeah, they're okay. I like them. No. He didn't say, just say they're okay and I like them. He said to love them as much as we love ourselves, and most of us tend to love ourselves with no problem. But God promised that our, our love could be real because its source need not come from within our broken and self-centered souls. Rather, He said that we can love others because He loved us first. When we really grasp how much He loves us, then we have no problem with loving Him. And when that love is in us, we have then no problem to love those people who tend to seem unlovable. Jesus said, if you love God, you'll love people. The Apostle John went as far to say, as anyone who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. So how much does God love us? He loved us enough to give His only Son. That is the ultimate sacrifice and an un ultimate example of unconditional love. And I say unconditional because it doesn't matter that we weren't perfect. It doesn't matter that at the time we didn't even love Him back. He loved us enough that He would do it anyway. While we were yet in our sins, He loved us. If we really want to love our neighbor as Jesus said we should, then it's real simple. We just study the way that He loves us and we do the same thing. Unconditional love requires giving above and beyond what they expect. Sometimes we, we give to others and when we do it, we, we give them what we don't want anymore. Or what we will never use. Or what will not cost us anything. It's kind of like if you've ever been in a situation where you're at the house and, and somebody opens the refrigerator up and they, they pull out a pan or something. They look at this shriveled up something in the pan and they say, you want this? If you don't, I'm going to throw it in the trash or give it to the dog. Makes you feel good, doesn't it? They didn't do that because they loved you. And sometimes that's how we show love to other people. We give them what we're fixing to throw in the trash or what we're going to give to the dog. It didn't cost us anything. But to give as Christ gives, we have to give our best, not the leftovers. God gave us His best. 
And I believe that what Jesus was saying through this whole passage of Scripture is that if he gave us his best, then we should do the same. God bless you.